We are uh, winding down our series on the parables of Jesus. Uh, next week will be the last week. Uh, Pastor Dave will, will preach. And, uh, but today, we're going to talk about the, the curious case of the missing bridesmaids. And so there's a story that Jesus told uh, in response to some specific and particular questions that his, his early followers had. Um, and so if you can just imagine uh, Jesus and his disciples traveling around uh, the, the area doing, you know, works of, of ministry, healing people and, and preaching the gospel and casting out demons. And Jesus in these last few weeks is sort of on this, um, this, this farewell tour of Israel and, and specifically Jerusalem. So he takes his followers into the city and he looks out over the, the landscape of the city and the temple and he tells them, hey, in, in, in the end, uh, none of these things are going to remain. These things are going to topple. No stone will remain on top of, uh, of another. And his, his followers are shocked. They're shocked for multiple reasons. One of the reasons is because they can't quite completely understand why is it that he is going away. They don't understand. Um, and, and, and they're trying to, to, to grasp this idea that Jesus, their friend, but Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, uh, God in the flesh, is at, at some point going to go uh, away. And, and secondarily to that, they, they want to know what is it going to be like when you come back. There, there's this promise that Jesus is going, going to return. They have this sort of nationalistic understanding of this conquering king that comes back with an army and su subdues the surrounding nations. So, so that has been a hard idea uh, to displace. And so they, uh, they, they don't understand as Jesus is realigning their understanding of who the Messiah is, that the Messiah is, yes, a conquering king, but in this age right now with, with them and, and, and in this, this uh, 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 frame of reference, he's actually a suffering servant. He's actually, actually a, a king that sacrifices on behalf of his followers and on behalf of the nation. So they don't, they're, they're really trying to understand how is it and why is it that Jesus is saying the things that he's saying and that there's going to be this destruction that happens and when these things happen, it's just the beginning of the beginning of the end. So it's quite, it's quite shocking as you could, you could understand. And so in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, this is actually one teaching that, that uh, uh, straddles two chapters, right? So when Jesus, in, in Matthew 24, Jesus says this. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, tell us. They said, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. I mean, just like stark warnings right off the bat, right? Like, how are we going to know? How can we pay attention? And Jesus goes, well, number one, make sure no one deceives you. Meaning there will be deceptive ideas throughout the land, throughout our, our hearing and seeing and, and, and try, people trying to pull us away from Jesus. Watch out, no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of such wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. 
So the simple question, when will this happen and how will we know that you're coming back develops into two chapters of response with five parables throughout. Jesus just kind of lines them up. The kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like this. It's like this. The end of the age is like this. It's like this. It's like this. And he, he, he uh, is, punctuates these uh, parables with this command, Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, in light of the deception of many, in, in light of those who will come to lead you astray, in light of those false messiahs and false prophets that are sure to arise, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Keep watch. Keeping watch is not a, it's not this um, kind of slumbering, like lazing in a hammock. I, I love lazing in a hammock myself. Keeping watch the, the way that Jesus is saying, keeping watch over your own soul, your family's well-being, being on the lookout for those that will lie to you and lead you astray, promise you great things, but take you wayward, away from Jesus. That is more like a hunter in a deer blind. Yeah, there are, there are quiet moments. There's kind of like lots of time that passes, but those hunters in that blind are, are aware of every sound, Everything unusual, every movement that they see in front of them, that is what keeping watch is like. It's looking out for what you know you're supposed to be looking for. So you see throughout church history, Christians have been asking these same questions. When is Jesus coming back? How do we know that it's him? And how do we get ourselves ready? So the parable that we're going to talk about today answers many of those questions. It's going to be the third parable in the line of five parables. There have been differing schools of theology that crop up to answer these questions. Some believe key events have already happened. Some believe that most of the chaos remains in the future. Some believe we'll be spared from any hardship, while some believe Christians will go through extreme difficulties. And there are even those who say studying the events of the end times is confusing and a waste of time, and you just should focus on doing good things and being a good person and, and so on and so forth. But there is no dispute that among these schools of thought, that Jesus is the rightful king of the earth and that every nation will bow to his leadership. Everybody everywhere who is a, a Jesus follower has agreed on those points. God the Father has made his son the one true king because he is good, humble, and wise, and he will reign with perfect justice and perfect love. He's the only one worthy. If you read the book of Revelation numerous times, Angels and elders and all the sorts of people are falling down, saying that Jesus is worthy. He is the lamb who has been slain. He is the one who has sacrificed his life to procure redemption for us. He is the only one who deserves to be king of the earth. It's all throughout the scripture. The question remains, though, when will this come to pass, and how do we ready ourselves? And Jesus' answer to that is the same to us as it was his early disciples. Matthew 25, verse 1 says this, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but not, did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, a cry rang out. 
Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps have gone out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came in. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Jesus says this. As a, as a punctuation and a command. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. So when Jesus repeats himself, he doesn't do so by accident. He's a wise master teacher. He does so as an emphasis, as an exclamation point. This is the point of the parable and these other parables. Therefore, keep watch you do not know the day or the hour. Some of the other parables in Matthew 24, 25 talk about how he came sooner. Some of them are about how he came later. And the point is, do not grow weary in watching. He is surely to come. And you do not want to be caught unaware. Okay? So Jesus tells a story here about a familiar celebratory situation and yet changes key details. He does this sometimes in some of the other parables that, that end up mismatching cultural expectations. In the ancient Near East, the young single bridesmaids, here referred to as virgins, would be met by the bride and not the groom. Notice that the bride isn't, isn't actually mentioned in the story. People would be wondering, where's the, where's the bride? Like, it's, it, right? Like, there's, it takes two to tango here. There's a bride and a groom. Where's the bride, right? But Jesus talks about the groom and the bridesmaids. And they, they would be led into feast, not shut out as here, like like no good groom would shut out any guests on the, on the outside, was the expectation. So Jesus messes with that expectation because, again, he's a wise master storyteller. And when you mismatch details, those that would be familiar with it, who would probably go, yeah, yeah, I know this story, that would perk up their ears and cause tension. Wait, did Jesus get a detail wrong? No. He's actually telling the story in a certain way. He's, he's appropriating it to align it to his purposes, and he has them because they're leaning in now to their story. It's like referring to spots in a pack of zebras or like, did you listen to that one you know, Taylor Swift album that talks about all the good boyfriends she had? Like everybody knows two things. Zebras are, are in packs and they have stripes to throw off their enemies. And if you keep the scarf, Taylor Swift is going to write a song about you. Everybody knows that, okay? So, in Jesus' story, the groom is delayed, and the wise bridesmaids had a contingency of oil to fuel their lamp. So if you're like a, like a lamp, not quite like a Coleman-type camping lamp, it's like, if you remember Aladdin and the lamp, it's sort of the, one of those elongated lamps, and the oil goes in the main part, and there's, a, there's kind of a stem or a wick that comes out the, 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 the small part, and so they had to trim their wicks, kind of like you trim a candle so the flame doesn't like take over your house and burn it down. Like They trim the wick, and they, they make sure the oil is enough to, to, to last through the night, and so these wise bridesmaids had extra oil that they were able to take and refill their lamps so that their lamp kept burning. But when the excitement of the groom's arrival stirred everyone, the foolish bridesmaids, those who didn't plan accordingly, were left to scurry. They had to go and find more oil. 
their lack caused them to be shut out of the party and di- uh, dismissal from the groom. So Jesus returns here to an earlier point he made for dramatic emphasis. Keep watch because you don't know when he's coming. Be alert, plan accordingly, lest we be caught unaware and shut out uh, out of the kingdom. And so at this point, we feel this tension, even though we may not know the first century context, why Jesus would tell a story and and all the kind of wedding festival uh, festivities, the way that they are, we feel the tension of this command. Like the bridesmaids left on the outside, we wonder how could this be? How could Jesus leave anyone out? We remember early in Jesus' ministry where he says, just come, come after me. If you want to come, follow me. Come and see what I'm about. Come see what I'm doing. Hear my teaching. Hear my words. Follow me around, right? But we assume that 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 snapshot of Jesus' ministry carries throughout, and we would be wrong. Under that assumption, remember, Jesus, there's a turning point in Jesus' ministry where he cranks up the heat on what's required from his followers, right? In the beginning, he accepts anyone and everyone, and then he starts teaching harder and harder things, and he kind of thins out the crowd to see who's really serious versus those who are just like fans. They just like him on Facebook. They kind of share his post every once in a while if it's in their self-interest. Jesus says in, in John chapter 6, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and you don't do that to good Jewish boys and girls, right? Like That's a hard teaching. That metaphor is hard to, to grasp and get your heart and mind around, but Jesus does not shy away from those hard t- sayings, those hard teachings. And here, this is a hard teaching for us who's used to Jesus being the good shepherd and we're little lambs that kind of bounce around. He's going to just take good care of us. No, he says, you actually need to be a part of this partnership. You actually need to respond in a way that shows that you are aligned with my heart and my will. You need to respond in obedience to be welcomed in. And for us, guys, gals, that's hard here in America where we're used to kind of praying a prayer, Jesus, come into my heart and I'll be with you in heaven forever. I actually don't mind that prayer. I just mind it when it doesn't, isn't followed up with a lifetime of sacrificial obedience where Jesus told us, pick up your cross and follow me. This instrument of death, you have to pick that up just like I picked my cross up and come after me. And those who don't are not worthy of being my followers. Those who don't want to sacrifice and give their lives to me are not worthy. And they cannot follow me because they will not follow me. So this is a hard teaching for us. There is a presuming upon that looks like faith. that I just believe Jesus for everything. But it's actually a covering for immaturity and laziness. And that's what... The foolish virgins, the foolish bridesmaids teach us. They assumed that the goodness of the groom would just let them in. They would let them slide. They would let them get in, maybe by the skin of their teeth, maybe a stern look or a wag of the finger, but they misunderstood justice. They misunderstood the heart of the groom to do what is required to enter into the feast and festivities. There is a presuming upon that looks like faith, but it's actually a covering for immaturity and laziness. And the result is that our hearts grow cold and they grow distant from God. All while still using the right language and displaying the correct behaviors. They have the, the, the white robes. I have my lamp. I have my robe. I'm, I'm in, right? I'm a Christian. I'm a Jesus follower. I look and do like everything everybody else does and says. 
But at the heart level, we're disconnected and we're postured to say no time and again from the invitation of Jesus to follow him. You see, the cross is a forgiving tree and it's a tree that produces real fruit, not plastic ones. And when we look at our lives, we should be able to see the fruit of God's spirit working as we partner with Jesus and as we say yes in sacrificial obedience to him. Frederick Dale Bruner in his commentary on Matthew says this, the Christian life in Matthew is a life of tough discipleship, of persecuted mission, of practicing joyous demands, and of exercising self-denial for the sake of others' salvation. The Christian life in Matthew is not a kind of faith that believes a conversion experience is all one really needs. When the devil pressures and temptations come to conversions only people, they are deeply embarrassed by the gospel and its requirements and make as as quick an exit as they did an entrance. And he's referring there to the parable of the soils, by the way. Discipleship is a life of patient listening to the word and of constant repenting under the conviction of the word. Martin Luther has said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended for the whole life of believers to be a life of repentance. One-shot Christianity is misleading and finally fatal. The lamp oil of experimental Christianity without the reserve oil of discipled Christianity, that is to say an experience of Jesus without obedience to his teachings, betrays unbelief and will not find entrance into the end-time kingdom. So for us, the crux of the parable is that those who follow Jesus must be active in their sober awareness of where they stand in relation to Jesus. This awareness will be made manifest in what he refers to in the parable as oil. So what is this oil? What does it stand for? What does it represent? What does it mean to us? I think Bruner is correct to encapsulate it as an experience plus obedience. There is a salvation experience. There is a, I give my life to Jesus, even if it, you did it at you know, five years old and it's a, it's, a, it's a regular commitment that you make. There is an experience of I believe in and follow Jesus, and there's obedience that follows through. It shows up in our behavior. Oil, in other words, can be summed up in intimacy. Intimacy is a deep connection with and commitment to another. There's an opening of oneself through vulnerability, and there is a protection of that relationship through adaptation and growth. One large step of growth and maturity is moving past what's right or wrong in a relationship to a place of what's doing necessary, what's doing what's necessary to protect the connection. There's a point in your Christian maturity where it's not about the Ten Commandments, do this, don't do that. I mean, you should have those kind of locked away, you know, don't lie, don't murder, honor, you know, authority and mother and father and things like that. But there's a point at which you get with God where it's not about right and wrong, it's what protects the connection. That's permissible for someone else to do, but God is leading me elsewhere. I can't do that. I can't say that. I can't live in unforgiveness like people around me. I can't be, you know, I can't be an anonymous troll on YouTube comments like everyone else because my connection with God and what he's asking me to do to live above reproach and to be kind and to love enemies and people that are trolls back to me on Twitter, I can't live like that. So there's a danger in our culture to automatically sexualize all intimacy, which puts us at odds about how God refers to and uses the language of intimacy in the Bible to describe the relationship we have to him. 
The obvious example is Jesus referring to himself as a bridegroom in this parable. Other places in the scripture, God refers to himself as a husband and his people as a wife, as a bride and a groom, so on and so forth. God represents himself in this matrimonial language to show the power and the commitment of covenant, the love for the other that he has initiated and he demonstrates and he asks for back from us. Okay, So a lamp with reserves of oil is representative of a Christian's life that has not only declared his or her intent to follow Jesus, but expresses it in daily commitment of living a life that aligns to his kingdom values and the practices that form us according to, to Jesus's character. Oil in the scripture is often a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. So it's a reminder to us that it takes God the Spirit to empower us to go deeper in our relationship to God. Mike Bickle, who's the director of the House of Prayer in Kansas City, says this, the oil of the Spirit touches our heart in different ways, including the following. First, it tenderizes our heart, enabling us to feel more of God's desire for us. It takes God to love God. And so as we receive God's love as a gift from the Spirit, it, when we receive that, it awakens more love back to God. To, to gain more oil means to, to experience the activity of the Spirit as he, Romans 5 says, sheds abroad, or he pours out love into our hearts by his Spirit. It awakens love. Secondly, it enlarges our desire for him by encountering his desire for us. God is a lover, and when we encounter God as a lover, it awakens more love for him in our own hearts. We want to love God more because, again, he's, we see how much he loved us first, how, how that sacrificial love played out on the cross, how God shows up in their, our everyday lives through, through answers to prayer, through meeting us in moments of pain and suffering. We see God as a lover who is with us, and he is for us. And we have a desire then to, to, to reciprocate that love back to him. It illuminates, thirdly, our understanding with growing insight into God's beauty. God created everything. He is the most beautiful being in all of existence. He's the uncreated God who thought the most beautiful thing that you can think of in creation. He thought that up, and he has more to come. And so there, there's, a, there's a captivity to wonder and beauty that the, the Spirit awakens in our hearts Fourthly, and this is not an exhaustive list, it's just, just one that I really liked, it imparts zeal for righteousness, which helps us to overcome various temptations. Again, it's the protecting of that relationship. It's a zeal to walk in, in what Scripture and, and the saints of old call holiness, to protect the dynamic relationship with God at any cost, to do what he's doing, to say what he's saying, and to, to get away from anything that is unlike him. In the partnership that God desires for us, there are things that we are unable to do, such as procuring salvation and redemption for humanity, because that required God's intervention. We could not save ourselves. But there are things that he is unwilling to do for us. So there are things we can't do, and there are things that, that, are, that God is unwilling to do on our behalf, such as force a deepening relationship on us, which requires us to yield to him, to invite more of his presence, more of his power, more of his activity into our life. And we yield to him and ask for more of this oil of his presence. He's not going to rustle us down and pour oil in our lamps. Uh, I just actually read recently, um, Richard Foster, 
He's a great author and, and professor. He just made a very simple but profound point. No one has time for prayer. No one has time for prayer. You have to make time for prayer. I mean, insert and set a prayer. No one has time for God. You have to make time for God. No one has time to procure oil. Do you understand? Like, my schedule is like your schedule. It's bonkers. It's bananas, right? No one has time for this. But you have to make time if you want to watch yourselves and procure oil. Because God will not force himself into your life. He wants partnership. He wants a yieldedness and an invitation to pour more of himself into you. Okay? So how do we keep watch over the stores of our oil? So we, we, we talked a little bit about what is oil. So how do we keep watch over what we have and how do we then increase it? Now I've got four things. Again, this is not exhaustive, but I just wanted to leave you with some really practical Perhaps steps or commitments that you can make and say, I feel like the Holy Spirit's asking me to do this. First, be saturated with God's truth. Dallas Willard in his book, Life Without Lack, says this, the focus of your thoughts significantly affects everything else that happens in your life and evokes the feelings that frame your world and motivate your actions. We know this to be true. What you focus on is what you become. There's a, there's a biblical principle. What you behold, you become. It's important to guard our eyes, to our, guard our ears, in order to guard our hearts against anything that will pull us away from God. So we need to be saturated in God's truth through his word. Two of the most simple practices for attuning our heart to God is through prayer and scripture reading. It doesn't get more simple than that. I, I would say it's not easy to do, Sometimes scripture can be confusing. It can seem contradictory. But there is no two more simple tools or practices that God has given us that simply put down your phone, pick up your Bible, preferably paper in those quiet moments because I know what distraction feels like. Open the scripture up and talk to God about what you're reading. God is not afraid of any hard questions you have to ask him. God has given us the gift of the Bible so that we know what he's like. We know the plan of salvation, but that is a launch point into relationship and conversation. We've got to be saturated. Like I know there, there are probably some of us who are here even uh, listening to the context in which the parable is, is being taught, right? Eschatology, which is like the 25-cent impressive word for studying the end times. There are some of us that go, Forget that nonsense. And then there are some of us that are like, yes, finally, when do we get to pull out the charts and the maps and stuff and like talk about end times? You know, I, I actually don't mind us that at all. I think, I think uh, the study of end times is more of a, a roadmap than a jigsaw puzzle, me personally. But hey, if that's what gets you invested in studying the scripture, I don't think there's a wrong way to do that, right? If, there, if there's... If that's what really like gets you going, like let's really go deep into end times and stuff like that, where are we at on the roadmap? Let's do it. Let's go all in because I know once you get addicted to Jesus' truth, there's way more of the Bible than just the end times. Although I think that is an important thing. And Jesus says, watch. So be saturated with God's truth, however you can get it in you. Secondly, trust the leadership of Jesus. I'm just going to tell you, uh, Jesus said this, I'll let him tell you. He said, no student is above the master, right? Meaning if he went through hardship, hardship is sure to follow anyone who follows him. 
I didn't say that right, but you get what I'm saying, right? Like we, sh- we need to be able to endure pain and suffering. This life will let you down. What you thought it was going to be about, who people, who you thought they were, they were going to let you down. Your family, your career, your pastors, your church, we are not perfect. I mean, you know, you can ask my sons and they'll t- actually, I my youngest is in third grade, and I'm still best dad in the world, so I'm, I'm milking that for all it's worth. My oldest is in middle school, and he's more kind of like that jaded social worker. You're like, yeah, people are terrible. <laughs> Not really. Like, he thinks I'm great. But you ask him, hey, is your dad pretty cool? Is he great? He would tell you, no, he sucks at Fortnite. That's, that's kind of the summation. <laughs> and it's truthful. Like, he's being truthful to you. So we're, people are going to let you down. They're not going to measure up. We're going to not follow through on our word the way that you expect or even we said we would. And yet, those are moments of disillusionment that are a gift from God. If you can see it as such. Disillusionment means I'm just dropping the illusion of perfection. I'm, I'm dropping the illusion of my expectation. And those are moments where you can trust, where you, where you have a choice to trust the leadership of Jesus over your life. Is he as good as he says he is? People have hurt me. Things have let me down. My toys have broken and left me impoverished. Can I still trust you, Jesus, in the midst of this? And I would say, yes, trust the leadership of Jesus. He has created you. He knows what will make your heart soar according to his design of flourishing and fulfillment. And he has a good plan. I really do believe that. Thirdly, be skeptical of anyone who promises that fulfillment outside of Jesus, especially anybody that promises it at a discount cost. Right now, you know, we're slowly introducing parts of the internet to our middle schooler and he's learning and we're having to just coach him along the lines of like people over promise and under deliver, buddy. No, you cannot pay $10 for that $50 Fortnite skin. I don't know why you would do that anyway. That person is going to take your money and you will not hear from them again. That's a hard lesson to learn, isn't it? Be skeptical. Be discerning is the biblical way of really saying that. Be discerning of anyone who promises fulfillment outside of Jesus. We live in in an age of deep suspicion and disdain towards institutions. Institutions like education and government, family and church that have really been the bedrock of Western culture, especially in America, are, are crumbling And for many times, good reasons, for many times, like, not good reasons, right? Like, there's just a deep skepticism and suspicion about anybody who has authority. So where we've gone is we look to outsiders of the system and give them automatic authority. Well, you're an outsider? Well, okay, you'd speak to me, right? Think about the Instagram influencers who people follow. They have, like, millions of followers and, and no specific education or expertise in their field. Think about all the, the, the travel influencers that just go all over the world and take photos and videos of all the beautiful places. It's the highlight reel, right? But we've given our authority over to them. We're, we're more likely to believe people who are not doctors about medical treatments and who are herbal specialists. Like think about, just think about that for a minute. How suspicious we are of people who are in the system versus who are outside the system. Our institutions are crumbling, and we've given it to people like the Kardashians who are famous for being famous, right? Like, 
That's the thing. And, and we're saying, you teach us. I'll buy your makeup. I'll like your post and share it. And maybe I can develop my own brand and style based off yours. This is not a new phenomenon. I remember in the 90s where Gatorade promised me if I drank Gatorade, I could be like Mike. I don't know if you could tell. That did not work out for me. But there are people that will promise you all sorts of things. If you buy their product, if you click and like and subscribe, if you share, if you sign up, and it will lead to deeper suspicion and skepticism. And we need to be discerning about anybody promising us fulfillment outside of Jesus. Four, practice the way of Jesus together. There are pressures in this life where we will be unable to withstand their temptation if we do not have the proper connection to Jesus and his people. And where many of us are the most susceptible is where pressures and temptation work to isolate us and take us out of community. What is one of our first responses to pain? To wall yourself up, to reject that person who hurt you out of self-protection and of further avoidance, or avoidance of further hurt. I get it. I do it myself. Yes, we want you to be safe and free from harm. We believe everybody deserves that as an image bearer of God. Everyone deserves to be safe and free from harm in community. But I will tell you this, there's a difference between hurt and harm. There's a difference between being hurt by someone and being harmed by someone. That may be a semantic for some of us, but I like to think of it like this. My high school football coach used to ask us when we complained about being uh, injured, he said, are you hurt or are you injured? Because you can play hurt, we do it all the time. We tape it up, we pack it in, we put ice on it afterwards, you can play hurt. But if you're injured, we need to get you to a doctor right away. And we, when, we, when we confuse hurt and harm, many of us reject community because we expect community to be perfect, but we allow ourselves to not be. We need to play hurt. Any relationship has the potential and probably pretty high percentage of likeliness that you're going to get hurt. That's what it means to be vulnerable in community is that you open yourself up to intimacy with another person, a relationship, a friendship with another person, and you trust them and they can actually let you down. And that's probably going to happen. But such, such is community. And we have to be okay with that, of repairing relationships, of forgiving, of asking Jesus to come in the middle and repair hurt relationships. But if you're harmed, yes, then that's where pastors need to get involved. Yes, that's where other authority to speak into that. We do not think anybody deserves or needs to be in a place of harm. If you're harmed, if you're abused, if you're traumatized, that's when we have to get people involved to get you the attention that you need. So just know, when we say we can play hurt, we can do, do community in a place of vulnerability where we open ourselves up. To do otherwise is to put yourself in isolation and that the, you're easily picked off by the enemy to, to whisper lies and to isolate you further into whatever it is, whatever you know, pet sins or whatever family of origin issues that, that you have that can spiral, spiral you out of control. There, we are hurt in community and we are healed in community at the same time. So to procure oil, practice the way of Jesus together. Be, be discerning, skeptical of anyone who promises fulfillment outside Jesus. Trust Jesus' leadership and be saturated with God's truth. Martin Luther said once, there are only two days on my calendar, 
this day and that day. There are only two days on my calendar. It's today to live in this present moment and that day where I would stand before Jesus. Now, you know, this is oversimplified. I, I have lots of things on my calendar. I would totally forget when to pick the kids up if it wasn't on my calendar pinging me through my phone. You get what he's saying. We all have an appointment to stand in front of Jesus one day, in front of this man who is king. He is full on love and he is full on justice. What he says goes and what he says is good. On that day you stand in front of Jesus, he cannot be manipulated. He cannot be, I wouldn't say reasoned with, but you, you understand he can't be swayed because he sees all and he knows all perfectly. The good news is that he's forgiving. The good news is that he meets us in the present day, in the here and now, in all of our weakness. My point is that my hope for you is that you use every day up to that day to get for yourselves oil. You press into his presence and you right yourself when you stumble and you go wayward. My hope for you is that with all your might leaning into all of his grace that is available is that you watch and that you pray. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. So I want to leave you with a question that will hopefully guide you towards Jesus and practicing his way. And it's this, how much oil is currently in my lamp? To be watchful is to be aware and to do a heart check. Where am I at with Jesus? For real. Outside of all the pretending, outside of all the trying to fit in or do or say the right thing, is my heart warm? Is it near? Is it leaning towards God? We know this life is a journey, so you may not be at the same point you are this, this afternoon or yesterday or wherever, but generally speaking... If I look over the past few days, past weeks, is my heart warm and leaning towards God? Or is it growing more cold and more distant towards Him? To just be aware, to keep watch over yourself. And what practice or commitment do I need to make to gain oil? What is it? Maybe one of the things that I mentioned, one of the things that we talked about was something even that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you personally, maybe privately. What is it that God is inviting you into so he could pour, pour more of his power and more of his presence into your life? Why don't you stand with us? I'd love to pray over you and prepare our hearts again for worship. So if you bow your heads, if you're online and watching, thanks for joining us. Just get in a comfortable space. So God, we, we do invite you in. We invite your power and your presence into this space. We invite your activity even now, God. Holy Spirit, we ask for more of you. Tenderize our hearts, God. You know where we're at. You know better than we know where we're at. So we ask that you would help us open ourselves more to you. Jesus, I ask that you would make yourself real to us. Those of us who are struggling with doubt, maybe going through a journey of deconstruction, God, you would meet us on that journey, just like you met those two in the road to Emmaus, kind of meandering and walking and doubting and, and not sure of themselves or what's going on. Jesus, you showed up because you cared that much. So I pray this week that you would show up in our lives the way that you 
that, that we need you to, the way that you know that we need you to. And God, for those of us that have a yes in our hearts for you, it's, it may be quiet, it may be small, it may be buried under junk. We invite you to come dust, dust off what needs to be dusted and pour fuel on that yes. God, pour fuel, your oil, into our lamps. The oil of intimacy, the oil of your spirit, God, fill us up with that. And for those of us that are struggling, we've just kind of understood Jesus as this kind of laid back, just come as you are, come as you will. And now we're hearing this this stark, firm, decision-making point from him. Pray, Jesus, that you, you would speak to that, that surprise, that concern, that you would come gently, but you would come as yourself, full on lion of the tribe of Judah, Lamb of God, that you would come fully as yourself and speak to the, the, the crisis that we're experiencing, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.